You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 83 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Uh, Very well. Thank you, Valerie. Just thinking about that, I'm very well. I'm looking forward to a a full week of of lots and lots of work and peace and quiet in my house and, you know, all of the good things. So that's about as much as I can think about right now. Very nice. What about you? Are you doing something exciting this week? Oh, am I doing something exciting this week? Goodness me. I'm recovering from the weekend. Oh, Um, well, it was my dad's 80th. So it was, yeah, you know, it was a big day. It was Mm -hmm. kind of exhausting. And because I had to emcee it, because I, you know, (laughs) that's my job. And um, yeah, so lots of people. Emceed your dad's 80. Yeah, I know. <laughs> lots of people to talk to, lots of people hadn't seen in decades. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it was fun. But I, as soon as I got home, I pretty much, it, it was a lunchtime event uh, and it lasted quite a while. But as soon as I got, home, I got home, I pretty much crawled into bed and watched trashy TV. Oh, <laughs> sounds, and that that sounds ideal. Yes. But anyway, let us talk about what's been happening in the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Let's. Yes, let's have a look at an independent Melbourne writer called Bo Taplin, who uh, apparently has garnered incredible praise from the likes of Khloe Kardashian. <laughs> And wow. Bindi Irwin, and wow. uh, but because they've all read his book, which is a hundred-page book called Buried Light, and um, he's he's just an independent publisher. Well, he's kind of self-published it really, and this is a post that was on Yahoo, and it just talks about the fact that you know he self-published this book. He has uh, tw- twenty-seven. He's he's twenty-seven years old, and in that time, he. Uh, has um, uh, written this book but also gained a following of 281,000 followers on Instagram, over 16,000 on Twitter and 10,000 on Facebook. So, and he's decided not to go with a commercial publisher because he wanted to to self-publish. And he says, from the beginning, I knew publishing as in traditional publishing wasn't for me. I believe it has its place, of course. A novel, for example, I believe should almost always be released through the traditional avenues as its success depends on distribution and bestseller lists. But self-publishing has always appealed to me because I know it's up to me and that I'm responsible. I'm an all in or nothing kind of guy. So that's always been important to me. So, you know, that's what he's done and he's done it very successfully, it seems. That's really interesting. So it's um, poetry? No, prose. Yeah. Is it poetry? 
Well, it's, you know, poetry is notoriously difficult to... Okay, so it is prose, but it's a collection of raw yet eloquent passages on love and loss. Yes, yeah, so it's not really a novel. It sounds poetic, doesn't it? Like, really? Yes. Um, so it's not poetry per se, and yet... Because those kind of books are so difficult to to get out there at all. Well, here's the thing. Poetry is definitely very hard to get off the ground, but I think the way this is positioned, it's kind of like almost like a series of motivational quotes and people ah, do love motivational quotes. You know what I mean? Do. So they're, 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 they're a bit longer than motivational quotes, they're, they're, but they're, they're effectively, um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll just read you one. I don't think surviving life unscathed is a sign of strength. Like the crashing sea smooths the stone, the difficulties in life strive to make us soft and strip us of who we are. No, our damage is evidence we stood against the tide and found the courage and resilience to go on living. So uh, it's a little bit longer than, motiva- than a motivational quote, but it's not quite a poem. Right, and there's a little bit of philosophy in there. Right? Yes, exactly. And people mm. are responding to that sort of thing these days, I've noticed. Yes, most definitely. I think, well, I, I think it's a whole thing of like, it, it comes from that whole thing of everybody's looking for advice and knowledge and inspiration on how to live. Yes. Like it's become a, like living is not just a thing one does anymore. You have to actually do it well. And, you know, <laughs> people are looking for guidance in, in how to live. That's right. Okay. And I think if he had marketed it as poetry, even though it ha- is kind of poetic, it probably wouldn't have done as well. It would have scared people away. Mm. And yet they're reading it and loving it, not realizing that what they're reading is actually poetry. Yep. Good on him. Of a kind. Yeah. Interesting. Moving on to something quite different. Uh, did you see the link this week? Uh, this is from TNW News, the next web, and it's uh, it's called This Vending Machine <clears throat> Prints Short Stories to Read Instead of Looking at Your Phone. Oh, did you see this? I did. <laughs> so basically it's a town in France has come up with a novel solution to stop people from you know being distracted by just looking at their screens all the time. And so a number of machines have been installed in the city of Grenoble already uh, and they're distributing original stories to anyone who wants one for free. So each story is printed on paper similar to a receipt and people mm-hmm. can choose if they want a story that will take one minute or three minutes or five minutes, you know, I guess depending on their attention span or their commute or whatever and or, or their, their, how long it takes for them to drink their coffee. But clever, huh? Very clever. Cute. I wonder where they're getting the stories from as well. Like yes, I wonder who's writing say. them. Mm, it doesn't, doesn't say, say that, does it? I, I think it's an interesting thing because I remember we did an interview with uh, Kim Wilkins a lo- like a fair while ago in our podcast. It was one of our earlier episodes and she was saying that – um, we've lost that ability, like f- f- she was talking about it from a writing perspective, mm. that ability to to do nothing, you know, just to, to, to stand there and take in the trees and look at the flowers and, and think about things, you know, um, because we every every spare minute we have, if we have to wait for the kids at school or we're waiting at the doctors, we're looking at our screens and we're not observing anymore. Mm. And from a writing perspective, that's a real problem because you, um, you know, that that. The ideas, that's where ideas are. Ideas are around you, you know, and yes. it's a matter of taking the time to think about them and see them and that sort of stuff. Um, so this is an interesting thing too because it's uh, like what they're trying to do here is get people, it's again off the screen, but you're still reading something. You're still yes. looking at something, aren't yeah, you? So that's you're, you're, true. Still, you're still not having that 
moment of I'm going to stand here and do nothing for, for a couple of minutes. We must, be, we, we always have to be doing something. Yes. And I find that, you know, I think that that deep thinking that brings about some of the best ideas that humans have is disappearing. Yes. And in addition to that doing nothing, it's just really observation as well because, yeah. uh, you know, Helen Garner has often said that she just observes and she writes, she, she, she just w- watches stuff going on around her and she'll hear a, she'll, a snatched part of a conversation. She'll write that down, you know, because she's observed what they've said and it's, it's, it's sparked something in her. So, yeah. but, but that wouldn't happen if she didn't, she wasn't a keen observer. No, that's right. If you're very focused on a screen or anything else, you don't, you don't tend to listen to what's going on around you. And mm. so you do miss those opportunities for stories. Well, let's move on again to something that I have a little bit of a bugbear about. I think you do Ooh. too. Yes. And uh, it's about author bios. This <laughs> was a link that uh, I read from BookBub, but I, it, it, it really just sparked my thoughts about author bios generally because if you have a, a – well, if you're an author and you want people to find you and you want people to spread the word about you, it's so important to have a good author bio. And yes. there are so many, and you and I always are always reading author bios, yes. that are just terrible. Yes. Now, what would you say are some of the things that – what are some of your comments about that? Okay, well, as a person who is often looking for authors to interview, and I think we have discussed this before, but it never hurts to reiterate this, I am looking for a one-paragraph overview Mm -hmm. that I can use either to put in my story that I'm writing or to use as an intro for a podcast or radio interview. I need to know... I need to know who and what you are within one paragraph. I am not interested in the fact that you want, you've been wanting to be a writer since you were six. Mm. I'm not interested in the fact that you love cats and sitting on the front veranda and watching the trees. Mm. All of these things are fabulous. Put them in your second paragraph. Mm. What I want to know is, is, is who you are. I want to know what you write. I want to know any awards you've won. I, wanna, like, I really want one paragraph that sums you up um, and gives me a good a shortcut Mm. for my story is what I need. Yes. Would you agree? Absolutely. That number one uh, number one piece of advice, a good, succinct one paragraph. And I would add to that a couple of things. Number one, um, well, number two, <laughs> don't tell your, your story chronologically. It pains me when mm. an author says, I've, my first book was published in 1973 and it was called blah, blah, blah. Then I published this. Then I published this. Then I published this. Start with the here and now, your latest book, and then you can fill in the backstory. Mm. Or, or, the, or, or, or if you haven't had a book published yet, the book that you are working on or is about to be released or that you're in the middle of doing the manuscript or whatever it is, yeah. um, it, the, and then go backwards. Don't give me the li- the, your whole life story in well from the beginning. Yeah, people need to know what you're doing here and now. And the other thing I would add is I'm really surprised at the number of autobios that start with what they're not. In other words, I'm not your traditional novelist. I'm not your typical nonfiction author. I I can't. I I just I am at a loss for words as to why Why people do that. that. Start with what you are, Mm. and you can talk about what you're not later. But start with what you are. So yeah, can I also add this? And this is a this is a really good tip. Okay, write your bio as you wish, 
and then give it to someone else and get them to write one paragraph for you. Mm. Because I actually find that it's often easier to get someone else to do it for you. Well, you did mine, Val. So let's face it. I find it much easier to get someone else to do it. It's often difficult to, like when you're writing your thing, I don't know what it is, but it's actually often easier just to get some, someone else will pull out your bestseller status and will put it in the opening sentence. Yeah. Whereas authors themselves can be a little bit shy about yeah. doing that for some reason. But if you're finding it difficult and you can't get yourself down to one paragraph, give it to someone else and say, write my bio for me. And you'll mm. be amazed. It will come out completely differently to how you would have done it and would probably be a whole lot more useful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great advice. Hmm. So moving on to something very, very different, a case of plagiarism. Ooh. Now, this is from Trout Nation and it's called, the link is called Don't Do This Ever, an advice column for writers, plagiarism warning edition. Now, it is a fascinating story because mm. it is about a, an author called Laura Hana, who is a prolific um, male-on-male romance writer. Mm. So prolific that uh, apparently she has released 75 books since 2010, which is like 15 novels a year. Wow. But a different author, an author called Becky McGraw, and she writes male-female romance, has um, accused Laura of plagiarism. And they're in this post – They've, they've taken the time to actually br- break down the pieces, the, the passages that have been plagiarised, and there is no doubt it has been plagiarised. Laura has just changed the names and some of the settings. And obviously because she does male-male romance, she's the, the, the romance between is between two males, whereas Becky's is you know male and female. And um, she's actually highlighted the text that has been plagiarized. So it's very, very been clearly plagiarized. Yeah. But what is, you know, what is bizarre is that um, Becky is actually a, um, uh, like a best-selling author. So why you would plagiarize somebody who is so high profile mm. <laughs> is bizarre. But I think that Laura might have thought she was a little bit safe because people typically who read male-female romances don't usually read male-male romance. So she wow. probably thought there wasn't going to be a lot of crossover, except that one particular reader does crossover and and oh, and notice this. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, and like I said, Becky is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author. Wow. So it's as if it wasn't going to get found out eventually, you know. Yeah. Unbelievable that people would do this. And yet she's been, and, and you know, she's been there blithely making money out of everyone else's work for yes. since 2010. Mm-hmm. Oh, this makes me so angry. Yeah, terrible, terrible mm-hmm. thing. Anyway, of course, the moral of that story is um, don't plagiarise. <laughs> don't do this ever. As, yeah. As Jenny Trout says, you know, <laughs> that's <opening> right. Line. <laughs> don't do this ever. Mm, really? Okay, I just want to move on now to mention our giveaway this week. Now, remember how we used, interviewed Mary Rose McColl? I do, the yes. author of Swimming Home. Well, we have a copy of Swimming Home to give away. So Excellent. if you're interested in entering, you just need to go to writerscentre.com.au 
slash win and the entries close on the 1st of November so if you are listening to listening to this podcast because you're catching up and the uh, the the competition is over don't worry just go to that same URL writercenter.com.au slash win and there will be a new book for you to win yes yes so now I have a writing craft book sort of oh yay Yes. Sort of. Yes. Because <laughs> okay. I know you hate this word, hate, hate, hate. What word do you hate, Al? I hate content. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is this book is Content Inc. How entrepreneurs this this and it has the longest subtitle in the history of man, quite oh, possibly. Yes. How entrepreneurs use content to build massive audiences and create radically successful businesses. Wow. Okay. By Joe Polizzi, who is, of course, the CEO of the Content Marketing Institute in the US. Right. And this book may not appeal to the creative writers out there, but anyone who is a copywriter, anyone who has clients will know that content marketing is the new black mm. and, uh, and that there is actually a lot of opportunity for freelance writers who want to do this kind of writing mm. in writing content. So I think it's important if you are in that boat, if you're writing um, blog posts for business owners or if you're writing case studies, if you're writing white papers or website copy, that you keep up to date. And um, this is definitely one of the, even though this is directed at entrepreneurs, if you're writing for an entrepreneur, it's very important for you to understand the mindset and and the strategy. Yes. Yeah, cool. So there you go. All right. Um, so I've got a blog for us this this um, this week, and it's by Candace Fox, who we have, who is a, a Australian crime author, who we have actually interviewed on the podcast previously. Yes. And she teaches she teaches the uh, course at the Australian Writers Centre how to write about murder. And she also is going to be at the Sydney Meetup, the next yes. Sydney Meetup, I believe, on the twenty third of November. Is that yes, right? make yeah, sure yeah. you come to the Sydney Meetup and meet Candace Fox. It'll be great fun. Right, so all of those things. Um, but I came across her blog this uh, week for mm. for just completely randomly because she wrote a post um, which is about writing two books at once, mm. and I found it really crazy. Quite interesting. Well, I found it quite interesting um, because, as you know, I do write lots of different things all mm. at the same time. So for me, it was like, okay, cool, yep, yeah, that makes perfectly perfect sense. But of course, lots of other people have had lots of things to say about why would you possibly do this to yourself. But <laughs> she talks about it's called Double Trouble. This particular post, and she talks about, you know, for the last four months, she's been writing two novels simultaneously, and this is this post is about the effects it's had on her as Mm. to why these things, you know, whether this would be a good thing or a bad thing. Um, And one of the things she says, and this is one of the things that I often talk to people about, is that this is the fastest she's ever written (laughs) because she's writing two books. When one gets difficult, she takes a break Mm. and starts writing the other. So Mm. she's always writing something and she's writing two, two and a half thousand words a day. Mm. So even when she's, um, she says, even when I've been down and out with writer's fatigue, I usually, I've usually put like words down on one text or the other and the break has left me fresher for the return to the other work. Mm. So she's, the two works that she's doing are quite different and she describes them as having starkly different styles. And you might think that this would be 
would be difficult because the two works are so different. But in actual fact, they feel like a break from each other when she's actually mm. like, so when she gets, one of them gets too difficult, she goes and does the other one and it gives her that, you know, refresher that she needs to go back to the, to the more difficult work. So that's quite interesting. And the other thing that she says, which I think is <laughs> quite funny, is that she started plotting. Um, so she's always been sort of more of a pantser in, yeah. as it is. Um, she sort of plots a little bit, but this time because she had wandered off the plot with the second novel, she realised that she couldn't afford to do that, not while she was working on two things at once. So she's actually sat down and done some really tight plotting on this particular, mm. um, for, for both books. We and get that so helped confused otherwise. Well, I guess you would, but I think that the, I think if you were writing two books that were very similar in style, it would be really difficult. Mm. Um, but because they are very different, they, you know, it's, she doesn't get confused. You're never going to mix your characters up or your voice or whatever you're doing. So um, it's interesting. And she says she has no time for uncertainty. Yeah, right. But, you know, she's just got to get on with it. And she's trying very, very hard to, you know, to get those projects both done at the same time. So she's got no time for uncertainty. She just has to keep ploughing forward and it's helping her to get those um, get those words down. But well, when you've have got you a ever deadline. written two things at once? Um, obviously I've written t- like different articles, but I've never mm. written two major Projects. major projects lots and lots of little projects more than two like I've written mm. like 10 at once yeah, yeah but yeah. they're all small so you can get into the zone and you finish it or yeah, you know yeah. even if you're halfway through it's not that it's not that hard but I I think I would find it difficult from a just stress point of view <laughs> yeah yeah I look I, I think it's one of those things too because I often uh, I often say one thing I often say to people is that when you're writing a book um, you often get to a point when you're writing a novel where any idea looks much better than the idea you're actually working on. Mm. And then the temptation at that point is to put novel one aside and go chasing after the shiny new idea yes. because it's going to be so much better and so much easier than this horrible thing you're working on at the time. <laughs> um, and that is a big mistake. But she has actually set out from the start Mm. to do the two at once. So this is not her starting one and then thinking, oh, bright, shiny idea, I'm going to chase that. This Mm. is her going, I am going to get both of these novels done by X date for whatever reason. I don't actually know why she's doing both at once. I think she has real deadlines. She probably has real deadlines Mm. on them, yes. So, you know, there's that's, that's, that's the difficulty. But, yeah, I'm not suggesting that you abandon a novel halfway through and start another one and go, oh, I'm doing both at once because you have to finish both of them to be working on both at once. Yes. That's the key. Yeah. Wow, good honour. Okay. Good. Well, now let's move on to our writer in residence this week who is someone a little bit different. Oh, be- good. Yeah, because um, Emma Noble has written a book, we mentioned it a couple of episodes ago, called The DIY Book PR Guide, The mm. Happier Guide to Do-It-Yourself Book Publicity in Seven Easy Steps. Now, we we hear a lot from um, authors and publishers, but this is really specifically from a expert in book publicity. Now, I've known Emma over the years through her work with the Sydney Writers' Festival, but also the Prime Minister's Literary Awards she has done the publicity for and she has her own book publicity agency and she had also at one point I remember which is when I probably first came into contact with her was with a publisher as in the public the publicist with a publisher and so um, she has had more than 15 years experience with fiction and non-fiction and has promoted writers like Michael Palin, Barry Humphreys, Indira Naidoo, uh, Chris Judd, the footballer, 
And also <laughs> novelists like Ian Rankin, Kate Moss, Maeve Binchy and Erica James. So I thought we would have a chat with her because it'd be interesting to get Emma's point of view on what you need to do to actually get known and get your book out there. So let's have a listen to Emma. Thanks for joining us today, Emma. Thank you so much for having me, Valerie. Now, I have your book in my hand, the DIY Book PR Guide with the subtitle, The Happier Guide to Do-It-Yourself Book Publicity in Seven Easy Steps. Now, as soon as this landed on my desk, I was very excited. For people who haven't got a copy of the book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, It essentially distills what must be about 17 years worth of experience (laughs) in promoting fiction and nonfiction on two continents. That (laughs) makes me feel incredibly old to say that, but it is true. Um, So I've collected together some of the lessons that I've learned along the way about promoting books. Mm. Um, I've learned those lessons the hard way so that you don't have to, and I have (laughs) written them all down in a book. So it's, it's everything you need to know about conducting, uh, constructing and conducting a book publicity campaign. Great. So can you give us uh, just a bit of a potted history about your background and experience in book publicity? Absolutely. I started off in editorial, funnily enough, um, in England um, in the late 90s. <laughs> Again, <laughs> makes me um, feel very old indeed. And uh, I always knew that I wanted to get into books. I actually had a journalism degree, but decided that books were more my speed rather than media. Mm-hmm. And um, started out in editorial and kind of quickly realized that I really didn't have the attention to detail necessary to look at the same piece of copy 17, <laughs> 18 or 19 <laughs> times, whatever it takes to be an editor. And I I really, I hated every second of it, but I loved the book industry. And I looked across my desk to the publicity department who always seemed to have a glass of champagne in their hands and be (laughs) on the phone and having a terribly good time just to, you know, reinforce all those terrible stereotypes about publicists. Mm -hmm. But they really did seem to love what they were doing. And an opportunity came up in a company that I was working for at the time, Quadrille Publishing in London. And Mm -hmm. the publicity manager asked me to go along and join her there. And that was my my first, it was a very experience they had some really great authors um many non-fiction illustrated coffee table books which are, are actually quite easy to promote so it was quite an interesting and easy entree into the world of publicity then I joined Orion Publishing in London um and they have a lot more fiction on their lists so I was working with a lot of crime fiction and women's fiction authors people like Erica James and Ian Rankin and Maeve Binchy and that mm. kind of broadened my experience out into the fiction world a bit And then it's a bit of a long story, but I've kind of come backwards and forwards between London and um, Australia, Sydney and Melbourne Mm -hmm. for a few years. And I was invited to come out to Sydney and run the Orion Group's list as part of Hachette Australia Mm -hmm. in 2006. So they, they kind of transferred me, (laughs) transferred me out to Sydney and I managed their list there for about four years before starting my own company. Great. And now what do you do with your own company? Now I represent authors of all sizes and all genres um, and I look after their publicity campaigns for them. A lot of my work comes via the major publishers who are working with increasingly lean staff in their publicity departments and outsource a lot of campaigns now. Um, But I also work with self-published authors um, in a range of genres, so fiction and non-fiction and um, 
actually primarily fiction in the last couple of months. So at the moment I'm working on a, a sporting biography for Alan Unwin hmm. and also a um, an incredible novel by Melbourne-based novelist Tony Birch called Ghost River. So I, it really does kind of run the spectrum, the work that I do at the moment. Yeah, great. So when you, I mean, you, you have clients, you do book publicity for either the publishers or directly with the author, but why did you decide to distill this all into a book? Uh, it's a really a, um, a good question and it, it was really a question of not having the time to help everyone. I get a lot of inquiries um, and unfortunately uh, this is a, per- a point worth making. A lot of those inquiries from self-published authors come way too late. Usually mm-hmm. it's a case of, oh, my book's been out for three months and nothing has really happened with it. Um, I'm wondering if you can help me. I mean, ideally, all publicists are different, but ideally I like to be on board with a campaign well before publication, about Mm. four months out if I can, or Mm. definitely before publication anyway. I find that um, novelty is one of the easiest reasons for a journalist to to cover something and a lack of currency is the easiest reason for them to reject uh, covering a book or an Mm. idea about a book. So... um, yeah, I I find that self-published authors tend to come to me way too late. So it, it's not to say that you can't get publicity for a book that has already been out there for three months, but it's just not the way I like to work. So really what I wanted to do is just put down, you know, the basic structure of how to how to construct your own publicity campaign in order to help those people that I couldn't help personally. Yeah. And so you've brought up that very valid point that a lot of self-publishers come to you too, or come to think of publicity, whether that's to you or not, um, too late in the game. So what are some of the other, you know, biggest mistakes authors make when they're seeking publicity for their book? Another great question. I would say not understanding what your book is actually about. It sounds like a really weird observation, mm. but I have been in many interviews in my you know early career when I didn't really know better and I should have briefed these people on mm-hmm. being able to describe your book succinctly and clearly in one or two sentences. <laughs> I've seen people in radio interviews go, you know, because uh, radio interviewers have very rarely read your book because they're busy people who interview five authors a week and, mm. you know, rarely get around to reading a book I've heard radio interviewers say you know local author so-and-so tell us a bit about your book and I've heard authors say well there's a guy <laughs> and there's another guy hang on but there's also a woman um but it, it's crime but it's not really cri- you know they actually can't describe what their book is about oh. so there's a thing in business called the elevator pitch that I'm sure you've heard of yes. which is you know you, you've got a, a business idea and your perfect ideal investor walks into your lift and you've got the two or three you know, however long it takes you to travel the two or three floors till they get out of the lift or you do to describe your business and ask them to invest in it, Mm. that applies equally to books. You know, you really need to be able to get your point across really quickly and really succinctly. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) What else have you got? What other ones are there? Because I think Mm. a lot of people will learn a lot from this. I think um, perhaps being realistic about who your reader is as well because I find a lot of people – self-published and traditionally published when asked who their reader is say oh this book is really for everyone (laughs) and you know that's that's not true of many books I don't think I think Mm. you know if if Bloomsbury when they first picked up Harry Potter had said I think this book is for everyone I think they would have they would have struggled to convince people that that was necessarily right. I think, you know, a very, a sort of very concerted and expensive marketing campaign eventually won around an adult audience, but essentially it's a, you know, a children's and young adult 
book that became kind of zeitgeisty enough to become an adult book as well. Mm. Um, you know, even those ones that do sort of transcend age and gender boundaries, I think they, you know, they're backed by massive marketing campaigns and they are, you know, backed by fleets of sales reps who are able to kind of position books in a way that they are seen by many, many different people. Essentially, most books have a reader, a certain type of reader. Let's mm. say you've written a book about, you know, you're a, a 36-year-old urban male who was interested enough in brewing his own beer to write a book about it. Mm. The chances are your reader is going to look quite a lot like you. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, we, uh, women's fiction is a very broad catch-all phrase, but, you know, it's called women's fiction for a reason. There are very few male readers who read women's fiction, romance fiction or, mm. you know, historical romance or whatever. So... It's unhelpful when planning your publicity campaign to go, do you know what, I'm just going to talk to all media because I really think this is a book that everyone should have. You would <laughs> need to be very clear about who your reader is and that helps you identify the media that they consume and that helps you target them. You're able to go to Australian Women's Weekly or, you know, Brewer, Brewer's Magazine Monthly, whatever <laughs> your book is about. I may have made that up or it might be a real <laughs> thing, I'm not sure. Yes. <laughs> but with confidence, knowing that the content that you're offering them is relevant to their audience and therefore more likely to get taken up by them. Yeah, absolutely. So let's say we've written a book and we want to do things the right way. We don't want to approach publicity too late. We want to make sure we have all our ducks in the row. When, at what point in the manuscript writing process, in you know the editing process, should, should we be thinking about publicity? Well, I suppose it depends on how you're publishing as well, doesn't it? Because if you're if you're publishing yeah. with a publisher, the chances are you're going to deliver your manuscript about a year before you're actually published. So you've yes. got plenty of time or nine months or whatever the traditional turnaround is, but it's a long time ahead, isn't it? Yes. Um, so that that gives you a little bit more leeway to sort of start thinking about I mean actually the other thing is if you're published traditionally you've probably got an in-house publicist so a book like mine might still be helpful it might give you a clear idea of what that in-house publicist is going to be doing and mm. when um, but let's say we're talking about self-published authors yes you need to be um, I think realistically you need to be thinking about publicity anywhere between four and six months ahead of publication in a perfect mm. world and that's if you want to talk to traditional media you're not just concentrating on digital media. Mm -hmm. So you let's take, for example, let's say you've, oh, I'm working on a book at the moment called The Dressmaker that is about to be made or about to hit screens. Yeah. As it, yeah, a film um, starring Liam Hemsworth and Judy Davis and various other luminaries. Mm. That book is a really good example of um, a novel that has quite a strong nonfiction angle to it, fashion. Now, you wouldn't mm. normally go to Vogue and Harper's Bazaar with a, a women's fiction read because they have very limited review space and they mm. tend to kind of privilege those sort of heavyweight literary novels. However, The Dressmaker is about a woman who goes, who leaves small town Australia, goes over to Paris, becomes a, a noted couturier and then is forced to return to her small Victorian town to care for her ailing mother. It's got Kate Winslet in the movie. She looks fabulous in all the frocks. And, <laughs> you know, like there's, there's just frocks, frocks and frocks throughout. So Vogue and Harper's Bazaar were incredibly interested in covering this book in speaking mm. to the author and in talking about the film. Obviously, <laughs> a film mm. adaptation is always going to be helpful for book of publicity course. purposes. But let's take, you know, let's say that you want to speak to Harper's and Vogue about mm. your book. 
they're working about four months in advance of publication, which means that we're in October 2015 and they are going to be working on January and February issues right now. Yep. So if your book is a February book, you need to be speaking to long lead magazines right now. So that really underscores the importance, I think, of you know, planning your campaign, working out which media you want to talk to, what you're going to offer them well in advance of their deadlines. Mm. And, and actually an important point to note is that what you really want to be doing is timing all publicity to coincide with publication. I don't know if I really made that clear, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, the consumer is exposed to so many marketing messages on an average day mm. that you want to be able to create as much cut through in that clutter as you possibly can. And the best way to do that is to concentrate as much publicity around the publication date as you can. Mm-hmm. And when you, if you've done that and you get, you know, a good response, you do want ongoing sales though. So should you also have a separate campaign for ongoing publicity? I think um, you want to time the initial burst to coincide with the first week or at least the first month of publicity. But mm-hmm. as long as you can kind of find new ways to keep talking about your book mm-hmm. and, you know, um, without having a specific example, there usually is plenty of opportunity. There usually are plenty of opportunities to carry on talking about a book. You can mm-hmm. hi- hook into the news agenda. There might be something on the, you know, first 10 pages of the newspaper, some kind of news story that touches on the subject of your book that you can respond to Mm. Um, there are anniversaries there are things like let's say your book is about a you know a a librarian there's national libraries day that you can try to book into Mm. Um, you can keep going back to media on anniversaries like mother's day and father's day depending on the appeal of your book Mm. Um, you can keep tapping into your personal experiences um, and finding stories there so you may have taken some fabulous trip that you think a a travel blogger might like to know about Mm. that you could write a short blog post in return for a book credit at the end so yeah definitely keep looking at ways of promoting your book on an ongoing basis but really what I'm interested in as a publicist is that sort of initial burst getting getting the launch right basically sure I was on the phone the other day to a woman who was um, bemoaning the fact that her book is out there you know she put a blood sweat and tears into this book as as all authors do and one of the things that she was saying is that I just can't get anyone to review it as in anyone at at any of the major papers to review Mm. it and I just want to get it reviewed and I've been sending it to them and I've done this and I've done that and no one is reviewing it even Mm. though she's also had some success in in her previous books my question is how important is a review I think it depends on the place really so if you really feel that your the Sydney Morning Herald is the heartland of your potential reader, then it is pretty crucial to try and get a review in there. And mm. people do, it's quite interesting, but as a publicist, I don't make my purchases based on reviews. And I'm mm. not sure why that is because I spend my entire life pursuing them. <laughs> um, but plenty of people do. And actually, mm. I use um, music reviews to purchase music. So it could just be something to do with the fact that I work in books. And, yes. you know, it's like knowing how the sausage is made, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, sometimes it's almost a bit of a, a vanity point. Some authors, I always make a point of asking this actually about an author's wish list because mm. sometimes it is as basic as an interview in their local paper so that their mum sees it. That's their mm. goal. That's the, you, you could get them a uh, review in the Australian. They'd be like, yeah, great, but what about, you know, the mm. leader? 
Um, <laughs> so I think it comes down to what's really important to you. Um, reviews are increasingly hard to get and they're very, very hard to get for self-published authors as well. You know, I mm. happen to know a couple of li- literary editors who don't really touch them, unfortunately. So it then becomes a question of maybe being a bit more creative about where you look for reviews. Mm. And if you're wedded to the idea of getting into the Sydney Morning Herald, maybe you start trying to create a buzz in other ways. Maybe you get yourself interviewed elsewhere in the paper or you write a short mm. opinion piece or, you know, you make your name familiar enough that... Susan Wyndham at the Herald says, God, I've heard of that person. Oh, hang on, I've got their book on my pile. (laughs) Yes. Well, speaking of, you know, trying to make a splash in other ways, the world of book publicity will have just changed heaps compared to when you first started in it, you know, um, 17 years ago. And 17 years ago, there weren't blogs, there weren't podcasts, there weren't, there wasn't social media. So how has the digital world changed the way you do book publicity and how important is it for authors to embrace that digital world or or, or appear in that digital world? Well, I should say that actually I don't do a whole lot of social media. I do my own promotions on social media, but I don't offer social media campaigns for authors and the book only touches lightly on that Mm -hmm. because, as you know, it's a, a whole subject in its own right and there are specialists who run Facebook campaigns and, you know, lo- load things up on Hootsuite for you so that you're mm-hmm. tweeting and Facebooking and Instagramming all in one perfect storm and, you know, <laughs> it is its own kind of discipline really. Um, but it does, it certainly has impacted on the world of traditional media too because where you used to be able to say with certainty to a TV show, yes, you can have the first broadcast interview with this particular author. Mm. All of a sudden, they're sitting in 3AW or 774 ABC Melbourne or um, 2GB in Sydney and there's a camera in there and the radio interview is being podcast. Mm -hmm. So officially speaking, that TV interview that you promised as the first broadcast interview Mm. isn't really the first broadcast anymore. So you know, everything that you give to a, a print newspaper ends up online now. Yeah. That's got, you know, serious implications for extracts, for example. Like you might be yeah. really happy for the Daily Telegraph's Body and Soul Daily page to run 800 words on your health and well-being book. Then it goes digital and all of a sudden it's all over the place, which is great for publicity purposes, but it does have kind of knock-on effects you have to be careful about. What, where else you offer that information or mm. who else you're giving exclusives to and how you're promising firsts and so on. So, yes, it's changed a lot. But I feel like there are lots more opportunities for coverage um, with the sort of explosion of, of channels available to you. Mm. And you can just be a bit more creative about it. Like you, you need to feed this kind of content machine, really, don't you? So there are yes. lots of opportunities for, you know, a creative approach and a talented writer to take advantage of. Mm. So you've represented many famous people in promoting their books, you know, like um, Barry Humphreys, the footballer Chris Judd, Michael Palin. What about if you have no profile, an author has no profile and they can't, you know, they're not, they didn't play in the grand final, they didn't win the Brownlow or whatever. I refuse to get out of bed for them, Valerie. No, of course not. Of course not. Um, No, I take your point. You know, you have to. You have to build a profile. You have to be a little bit more creative. They're essentially two completely different campaigns, actually. Mm-hmm. When you're working with a famous person, you're fielding incoming requests and you're trying to please as many people as you can without 
making any mortal enemies because you know everyone's everyone wants to go first everyone mm. wants to have you know 40 minutes with him instead of 10 minutes with him or whatever the situation is that becomes a real sort of air traffic control kind of campaign mm. and you know the chances are if you're self-publishing it's probably not ever going to be a problem for you <laughs> if I'm completely honest yes. the self-published author and the person with no profile has to be a little bit more creative about how they go about building that that profile so rather than just sit down interviews talking about the grand final they have to come up with way you know come up with interesting stories about their personal history or angles from the book there's an entire chapter in my book on Mm. angles and how to generate them and angles are basically story ideas that um, speak to a media outlet's audience and somehow touch on your book so you might be a plumber from Sydney's western suburbs and you might have written the definitive guide to home plumbing (laughs) Um, and that sounds like a really boring book that I would never buy but anyway there's an there's an audience for every book yes there is (laughs) but you might have been at the peak of your your plumbing trade and and the rough and tumble of the the high paced plumbing world might have taken its toll on you and you might have nipped off to Nepal for a month in order to escape the rat race and here are the five things you learned on your Buddhist retreat or or when you were backpacking around Europe or or that romance that you had when you were you know 18 that went horribly wrong or set the tone whatever it is you know there are lots Mm. of kind of personal experiences that um, either kind of you know resonate with everyone else Mm. that you can turn into a short blog post or a short article or whatever that mentions your book somewhere at the end you know so-and-so is the author of the ultimate guide to plumbing zen and the art of washer replacement or whatever (laughs) you creatively called it um and you just need to generate these angles I make it sound very simple but you know really what you're doing is having a think about the things in your personal life that you're prepared to share and how or the universal themes in your book that could be spun into little news stories or feature pieces or interview topics and you're working up a set of story ideas um based on all of these these um interesting points that you've identified and then you're working out who to pitch them to and that's actually in a potted sense the first two chapters of my book (laughs) H and A hit list and angles uh the media you want to speak to and what you want to speak to them about essentially so So, it's just a matter of plugging away Valerie yes well that makes sense if you are a plumber or if you have written a non-fiction book but let's say you've written a fictional book and it might be women's fiction. Uh, how do you come up with story beyond getting a review? Obviously, how do you come up with story angles for a fictional book that you can pitch to the media? Fiction is undoubtedly harder, but mm-hmm. finding non-fiction angles within the fiction still applies. That's still how you have to approach it. So, great. What's an example? Um, well, I mean, again, your personal life is a great place to start as long as you don't mind talking about it. You know, sure. if, if your um, book is set on a New South Wales farm stud, by the way, all these principles apply on the West Coast as well. I keep using Sydney and Melbourne as an example, <laughs> but they're universal, I, I promise you. Um, but if you grew up on a New South Wales farm stud and there's a New South Wales farm stud in your book, then there's an opportunity there to talk about your childhood and Mm. a pivotal point in your childhood for a a website like Daily Life or, you know, um, you have have to be a little bit creative about how you're pitching it to them because it can't just be, I grew up on a New South Wales farm stud, can I tell you about it? But it could be something like, I don't know, you might be one of 
11 kids and the Australian Bureau of Statistics releases results saying that uh, the Australian family is shrinking and it's smaller than it's ever been. Mm. And you're like, well, hang on. Here's an opportunity to talk about, you know, the fabulousness of having 10 siblings roaming mm. free on a New South Wales farm start, horse startle. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So you're, yes. you're keeping your eye on the news agenda. You're, you know, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, for example, is a really, really great place to start. You log on there, um, sign up, and they send you press releases about twice a day about things like, you know, refugees proving to be a valuable input to the Australian economy that, you know, Mm. that was a particularly useful one for me when I was working on a book this time last year about a a refugee to Australia. Mm. Um, Or, yeah, the size of Australian families or people getting married later or small businesses, you know, um, startups being higher than ever in the, you know, 2014-15 financial year, whatever those angles are. Quite often, I, I'm surprised at how often I find a link to a book that I'm working on when I read one of their their press releases. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Clem, Clem Ford writes something really interesting in Daily Life and you think, well, actually, I've got a, you know, a different take on that, that same subject and actually my main character goes through, you know, sexual assault or whatever horrible mm-hmm. thing that, you know, that, that writer has written about. Mm-hmm. And you might be able to add a valuable valuable perspective on that story so it is a matter of kind of keeping your eyes open watching the news thinking about how your book relates to overarching themes you know like bigger bigger issues rather than the specifics of you know three sisters Mm. and um and and then kind of thinking about how your experiences um make you a sort of unique and valuable commentator on those issues Great. So what's your advice then on how to pitch that angle to journalists? Do you Should you ring them up? Should you write it down in an email? You know, this is for the people who are doing DIY and yep. may not have a publicist like yourself. What's your advice to them? Well, this is the second P in how <laughs> uh, pitch. And it's quite an exciting bit. I mean, I, I do it professionally, I suppose, but I, I quite like this engaging with journalists. And I love the sense that you've you've hit on a story idea that really excites them. And then seeing it in print or on TV is just fantastic. But, you know, it, I suppose it's probably quite daunting if you've never done it before. Mm. So I would always say email. Um, I know plenty of PR professionals who aren't happy cold calling. And I know plenty of journalists who really are just a bit busy for the phone call as well so they'll you know if you do cold call them and hi my name's so-and-so I'm a local author living in your area the chances are they're going to say listen can you send me an email about that so the chances are email is going to be your first way of contacting someone um and in that email I would be obviously very polite uh, (laughs) very succinct about your story idea Mm. very clear about what you want them to do so do you want them to come to your launch do you want them to write a story about you before the launch in in order to encourage traffic to your launch Mm -hmm. do you want them to review the book Uh, what is it you're you're asking them to do be clear about that and when you would like them to do it by obviously that's your deadline they don't have to respect that but you know Mm. like at least you've asked Mm. um and then sign off just very short and very punchy and to the point. Um, I get a lot of approaches from self-published authors and there's just too much history in there. There's just oh, too yes. much detail. Yeah, I'm sure Life you know. Life story. Mm. Absolutely. And, um, you know, you have to kind of wade through 
10 paragraphs to get to the point which is that they're looking for PR representation or they're or they're you know they want quite often they're looking for an agent and I'm the wrong person anyway so Mm. that's a key point make sure you're talking to the right person and in this age of Google and other search engines it's it's actually not that hard to find out who covers what topics in which media Mm. Um, and then you know the chances are the old sound of one hand clapping the chances are your pitch is going to be met with complete silence it's a very demoralizing job I don't know why I'm still doing it (laughs) I'm just kidding um but you you're very unlikely to get a response the first time if you do good on you let me know what your trick is um so you're going to have to follow up a couple of times and how you time those follow-ups um is a bit of a combination of um, how willing you are to be completely ballsy and, you know, risk um, badgering a journalist and mm. putting them off that way um, and a combination of, you know, how long you can afford to give them as well because if you're timing everything to coincide with publication, the longer you leave it with one journalist, the less time you have to pitch it to another as well. So it's a bit of a tricky balance. You know, I'd usually leave it a couple of days before it, uh, between emails and then, you know, three emails later, maybe progress to a phone call if that's mm-hmm. your bag, or you might just decide to, you know, cut it loose and move elsewhere with the idea. Depends on your timing. What do you enjoy more, uh, publicity for fiction or nonfiction? Uh, I mean, there isn't a great deal of difference in the process, really. As Again, it goes back to finding those kind of saleable angles, those, mm. you know, ways of spinning a story and then selling it to the right person at the right organisation. But, I mean, nonfiction is easier, so the lazy part of me says nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, your book also contains sample, a sample uh, media schedule, sample press releases, and some checklists as well that people can uh, use when they're constructing their pitch, you know, when they're approaching media and all of that sort of thing. Is that right? Yes, that's right, yeah. Very so, handy. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you, you thought so. Uh, really, it I suppose it's like the skeleton of the entire book. It goes through constructing the hit list, coming up with angles, how and when to pitch and follow up and um, what to do when you're lucky enough to secure angles, uh, sorry, interviews, um, you know, how you construct that publicity schedule and what information you need on it and then how to review your campaign as well and work out whether or not it's been a success and whether whether or not there might be ideas that are super awesome that you're really convinced are great ideas and deserve some coverage but for whatever reason the first time you pitched them they just didn't um so there there is a little plan in there about how to kind of reattack and identify new people who might be interested in it and yeah i included um sample press releases because I'm aware that a lot of people have never seen a press release so uh, I thought that might be handy and there's also a little media training guide in there as well so when it comes to giving interviews a few key tips about you know what to wear on television (laughs) and how to conduct an interview like ours today where the interviewer is in a different location to you so you can't feed off those verbal cues and the facial cues and you have to something I'm sure I've done very badly today but stop talking when you've made your point (laughs) (laughs) so we've covered a a few of the seven steps for do-it-yourself book publicity and where can people buy your book if they would like to Um, they can either go to my website which Mm is www.noblewords.com.au or it should be available on all of the major e-tailers, so Amazon and so on, Booktopia and so on. 
Fantastic. And just a couple of final questions. When you, you've got clients and presumably you work on more than one client at, the, at a time, uh, how many do you work on? I'm just interested to know how much time you have to block off for each project in a sense. Mm. Um, I suppose because of the nature of the, the publicity campaign timeline, um, you know, if you're working on one book four months ahead of publication, you can't work on just one book for four mm. months ahead of publication. So by its very nature, you can slot in other books there. So you're, yeah, you're right to ask. I'm working on a few books at any one time. Um, as a freelancer, I'm lucky enough really to only have to work on, you know, two or three a month, which gives you a great amount of time to sit down and think about things carefully and, you know, construct a really great plan and, mm. and keep chasing people and keep adjusting your plan as you go. Um, in-house publicists, unfortunately, aren't quite so lucky. There's usually, um, based on my own experience, uh, maybe four or five big titles a month. And then if you're working like I was as the Australian distributor for a much bigger UK and US list, mm. there's probably 40 or 50 titles on that list as well that all need kind of, you know, basic review mail outs and yeah. a basic press release and whatever. So in-house publicists, incredibly hardworking people. And, if, you know, if yours, if you think yours isn't working very hard for you, the chances are she probably is. Give her a break. <laughs> be nice. <laughs> be nice to her. And, um, you know, buy my book and you can find out more about what she's doing for the yeah. plug at the end there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I say she because they usually are as well. Yes. And finally, what's in what's the grandmaster plan for you? What where do you see what you're you'll be doing in, you know, five years or so? I uh, I think I would like to have some sort of – I'd like to expand on the principles behind the book. So I'd like to be able to help people who I can't personally work on campaigns for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking at the moment at a series of online courses, mm-hmm. um, developing those right now. And I just, you know, I sincerely hope that, you know what the book world is like, it's so uncertain and every year there's some doomsayer who's, who's <laughs> all like, oh my God, ebooks are going to kill us and then they're going to save us and, you know, retailers are dying but then they sort of spring up. There's a bad news story every year about the publishing industry. They always mm. prove not to be true. So in five years' time, I hope to still be working with fabulous authors, talking to great journalists about ways they can cover it, really. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Emma. Thank you, Valerie. So there you go, book publicity and, you know, building your author platform and all of that, huh? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of that, Valerie, very big <laughs> fan. And I also think that I, I think book publicity, it often seems to be like that sort of like magical voodoo stuff that people don't um, don't think that they can do themselves, don't understand how it works and things like that. So I think it's always good to talk to someone who does it about what's actually involved. I think it's great. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Alison is also creating an upcoming course on how to build your author platform. So um, it's, it's And it's nearly done, people. It on is its coming way. Sooner. That, yeah, like it's taken me a little while to – I didn't realise quite how much – um, I knew about this stuff until I started writing. Yeah, it down. it's yeah. awesome. Start downloading your brain, and there it is. It's amazing. So, if you, you should register your interest, so you'll be the first to know. And trust me, it'll be worth it if you, you'll be the first to know. So, just go to writerscenter.com.au/platform, and you can um, register your interest by clicking on the uh, course outline. Fantastic. Yes. So, what have we got now? Um, yeah, our 
web pick for the week. What do you got for me, Val? I know you've found me something fabulous. Well, this was actually found uh, by Nicole in our office. So thank you, Nicole, for that. And Nicole is in the throes of writing her novel and she'll probably be doing NaNoWriMo as well. And so this is an app called Novella, as in N-O-V-L-R, Novella.org. And it's an app that is built by writers for writers, which you can use whether you're online or offline. And it's kind of like an online version of Scrivener in, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Well, um, th- they would have quite different functions, I'm sure, because Scrivener has some very, very robust functions that you probably, you know, need the app. You, you probably need to be offline to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, this has triple backups. This has focus mode so that you can block everything out else out and just write. Obviously, it's got word counts, a way to organize chapters, um, backups on Google Drive. It's also pretty um, if you're into aesthetics. Pretty. Yes. (laughs) If pretty matters, it's pretty. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, if you want to take a break from Word, which when you're writing a novel is a little bit clunky, Mm. then there are apps like Scrivener and uh, like Noveller. I love how they, you know, all of these apps get rid of vowels yeah, and always have to end with R or something like that, like Flickr, (laughs) Tinder, Fiverr, (laughs) Triber, and all of that. Anyway, so yes, (laughs) noveler.org. I don't know why I say it like that. I don't know why you say it like that either, but you're entertaining all of us with that. So thanks, Val. That's great. Yeah. So we have a working writer's tip this week, which is a question that we are often asked, hey, Alison? We are often asked. Yes. And it is, how much should you charge as a copywriter? Mm. Always a fascinating question, Valerie. So I think that I thought I'd just preface the answer by saying that this is very much how long is a piece of string because, you know, Mm. when you're a personal trainer, when you're a CEO, uh, how much do you charge? You charge what people will pay. You charge what you're worth. So I thought, and and that could literally be anything from $30 an hour to $800 an hour and and everything in between and and probably even more. So I thought instead we would share our tips on how we determine what to charge for different kinds of jobs. Mm. So is that okay, Al? Do do you want to take that? We can take that. Um, All right. So I think we've talked about various rates questions before and I think that when you are um, putting together a quote for a copywriting job of any kind, you have to think – you take several things into consideration. You have to take your your own experience into consideration if you are just starting out – then, you know, you have to be aware of that. And the chances of you that you're not probably going to be charging yourself out as as much as someone who's been working for high-profile clients for 20 years. Like it's it's just a matter of, um, of experience level. So there's that. There's how long is the job going to take you? Um, you've got to work it out down in your head down to an hourly basis in your head necessarily Um, you have to work out you've got to take in things like you've got to consider the fact that you're a business you've got to take into consideration overheads hourly rates how long will the job take you and then think about whether or not you're going to quote the job as an hourly rate or quote the job as a project fee because what you always have to remember with a copywriting job is that you send your words in and they are always going to come back to you. 
So there is always going to be editing involved. And depending on the levels and layers of editing, for example, if you are working with a very big corporation or a government organisation, you're talking about 15 layers of middle management who are all going to want to be involved in your, you know, even if it's 25 words, they will want to be involved in those. Um, and you get feedback and change edits and and you will it will often go around the houses several times. So mm. keep that in mind when you're putting your quote together as well. Who are you working for? Like what's the, what level of backwards and forwards is there going to be on this particular job? That, so these are some of the questions that I ask myself when I'm putting together. Also, when's it due? Do they want it overnight? In which case, mm. are you going to be working, you know, ridiculous hours overnight? Like those sorts of things matter as well because if, if a client needs something in a hurry which requires you to drop every single thing in your life to make that happen, mm. then there needs to be some kind of compensation in that for you as well. What else, mm. Val? What would you add to that list? Um, I, yeah, all of those points are definitely factors to consider when determining um, what rate. And I think you've mentioned uh, whether you charge an hourly rate, you, you decide whether to charge an hourly rate or a project rate. From my personal experience, I very much prefer the project rate mm-hmm. because, and the reason for that, and, and people say, oh, well, projects can blow out and all of that, but, and yes, they can, which is why I make sure from the start that we map out the project to the nth degree. Of course, th- things can always happen and that's okay because we'll build in a, um, a, a, a buffer for that. But um, I map it out to the nth degree because if it's not, then I find that the brief is really airy-fairy and it doesn't really have a good direction or structure or clear timelines. So when it's mapped out to the nth degree, it's very clear how much work is involved. And of course, things do happen. So I would always say, okay, here's my project fee. And the reason I like to do it that way is because, and and I don't like doing an hourly rate, is because I typically, I know that I work faster than most people and I can write faster than most people simply because Mm. I've been doing it for 25 years. That's right. And so if I'm going to charge an hourly rate, well, that's only going to take me 15 minutes. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm. And so I always map out, a project rate and then I say okay if it goes out of the scope of this project or if something happens that blows it out then my hourly rate is x whatever x will be mm-hmm. um and it, and that's typically a high rate because then they that discourages them from blowing the project out mm. I've even gotten to the stage where I've worked with some clients who I know that working with say John Mary and Bob is very efficient Yes. But working with Susan is is not efficient because Susan takes a really long time to get back to you or, you know, comes back with lots of changes every time instead of just like multiple times instead of all in one go. So I've been in those situations where I'll just be honest with them and I'll say, okay, anything I have to do with John, Mary and Bob is part of the project scope and part of my project fee. But if mm-hmm. I have to deal with Susan, it's a huge hourly rate. <laughs> for for any minutes that I have to spend with Susan. Mm. And that also discourages them that you know that encourages them to get Susan to be efficient and also discourages them from making me deal with Susan. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly you're not a fan of Susan. Um now the other thing is um it's worth having a look at rachelslist.com.au. Yes. She does a survey every year of um it's called show me the money. Um this year's survey hasn't been done yet, but the show me the money for 2014 
showed that copywriters, 13% of copywriters surveyed were charging between $100 and $150 an hour. 22% were charging between $50 to $80 an hour. So you get a bit of an idea by looking at that of what other people are charging mm. and then you can perhaps work out where your fee might work in that. Um, she, they have content writers on there. So 15% were getting 20 to 50 cents a word. 15% were getting 50 to 70% a word. 19% were paying by the package, were charging by the package. Mm. So, you know, like it, it always helps to ask around as well, just to get a feel so that you're in the ballpark. Yeah. Like the last thing you want to do is be undercharging so much that you're just, you know, it's ridiculous. Um, mm. But you also don't want to be overcharging so much that you're never going to get a job. So, yes. I mean, Valerie, I, I think it also comes down to your advice for corporate writing and all other things, which is, you know, what are you willing to do it for? Yes, exactly. What amount will you not resent? Yes. And I think if that you resent, you'll be yep, very unhappy. Very unhappy. So pick the amount that you won't resent, that you'll be happy to get. If you're happy to get, they're happy to pay it, win win. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Well, right. well, there you go. Now, that was us talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, a lot of people come to me for book recommendations for obvious reasons. And a lot of people ask me about, um, you know, certainly about business books and um, and about the latest in fiction, but also about books for their kids because I'm now at that age where a lot of my peers, a lot of my friends have kids that age. And I am certainly recommending the Mapmaker Chronicles because <laughs> particularly because… I would be so cross if you didn't. But yes. <laughs> well, no, oh, Christmas yeah. is coming up. That's right, it Christmas is. Christmas is coming up. And that's why I'm getting a lot of these queries now. Yes. And I think that a great idea, and I've recommended to just a friend of mine yesterday, um, that he buy the bundle because yes. especially if their kid hasn't read the first two yet, they can now gorge themselves all in one go. Uh, silly series, that's right. So, well, fortunately, um, like uh, places like booktopia.com.au are actually selling the bundle at a discount as well, just in Great. time for Christmas, which is perfect. Um, we'll but put I would the also, link in the show notes then. I would also say for people who are looking for recommendations for kids for Christmas, because there are a lot of people I'm getting queries as well, mm. um, I would very much recommend the Children's Book Daily blog, uh, oh, which yes. is fantastic. And hello, Megan. Hello, um, Megan. Megan is an amazing supporter of, of – she's a, a school librarian, amazing supporter of children's fiction, and she does a fantastic blog. So yes. have a look at that. I would also be looking at kidsbookreview.com, uh, which is a, fa- it's a daily. Every single day there's a new book review for different uh, of different books for kids of different ages, so it's always worth uh, doing that. And Susan Whelan, who is a picture book author, is one of the editors of that website, and they also do a fantastic job. And I would also recommend that uh, Planning with Kids, which is a website run by Nicole Avery, which is a mm. fantastic site if you have any questions about organising children because she is – honestly the queen of planning with children i just i take my i am in awe of that lady um i've been writing a series of posts for her about reading with kids and write and also getting kids to write so it's worth having a look at her website if your kids are into writing mm. um but i'll be doing a series of posts leading up to christmas of uh you know different types of books for kids um for christmas as well so uh, yeah, lots of recommendations there. Thank you for that, Val. That just all came out of the top of my head beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it when that happens. So what are you going to be doing this week, Val? Anything exciting? Any glamorous trips? Oh, glamorous trips. No. <laughs> oh. 
No, no glamorous trips. <laughs> but um, a shout out, yeah, yeah, definitely to Children's Book Daily for for all of your support. But also a couple of um, reviews and ratings on iTunes. We've got some five star reviews from RCM Phone and Jane Jackson eight eight eight. And uh, um, RCM Phone has said informative, relevant, and fun. If you're interested in writing of any form, fiction, nonfiction, freelance, blogging, etc., then this podcast is the one to pick. Alison and Valerie deliver excellent tips, discuss relevant issues and interview a wide variety of writers. The show's format ensures that each episode remains interesting and fresh and I look forward to it each week now that I've caught up on the 80 plus episodes. (laughs) Well done, ladies. Definitely a five-star performance. Thank Thank you so much, RCM Phone. Really appreciate it. I I also think, Valerie. Yes. Thank you very much for those and we love we love getting ratings and reviews on iTunes. It really makes our day. So please, if you have a minute to drop us a line and a review, we would love that. Yes. But I also have to do a shout out to Clint Gregan, who, of course, is the blogger behind Reservoir Dad and the Hi, author Clint. of the nonfiction book by the same name, who's currently writing a novel and sent me a message during the week saying, I'm loving the podcast at the moment. I'm listening to you guys in the shower. <laughs> and I was just left with that moment of... Did I actually need to know that, Clint? However, oh, I've always wanted to shout be, out. I've always wanted to be in the shower with Clint Gregan. Oh, of course. <laughs> stop it! Just right there, we're going to end up with an X rating on iTunes if you don't stop right there. But anyway, hi, Clint, and good luck with the novel. I hope it's going well. Yes, good luck, and of course, Clint's uh, book Reservoir Dad is actually being made into a movie by Truce Films. So yes. very exciting! Very Great exciting. that you're listening. All right, well that brings us to the end of our episode this week. Where will we find you on social media, Al? Uh, you will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And don't forget that I have that uh, Facebook group, support group yes. for NaNoWriMo. So if you would like to join us, um, you'll find the details over there on my Facebook page. And of course, that's kicking off you know, on the weekend, which is pretty exciting. I think everybody's a bit nervous judging by the comments I'm getting Mm. in the group. And then where else will you find me? Oh, you'll find me at alisontate.com, which is probably the best place to find me of all because that's where all my stuff is. Yes. Mm. And you'll find me on Twitter at Valerie Koo as well as Instagram and uh, Facebook and you'll find the show notes. We made it easy for you so that you only have to remember so you want to be a writer dot com dot au and that's where all the show notes will be so thank you for listening everyone and until next time we'll chat to you then bye this week's giveaway is swimming home the fifth novel by mary rose mccall it's about a young australian and her aunt each on a journey of self-discovery one by attempting to swim the english channel and the other to rediscover the woman she used to be Visit writerscentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday 2nd November. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry because there will be a new book giveaway at writerscentre.com.au slash win that you can check out at any time. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writercentercomau slash podcast. <laughs>